Insulin resistance and colorectal cancer. Is there a connection? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable and a special series exploring cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Andrew Flood, who is Assistant Professor in the Division of Epidemiology at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dr. Flood is a Ph.D. epidemiologist and, in addition to his academic appointments, is an adjunct investigator at the National Institute of Health's Division of Cancer, Epidemiology, and Genetics. Today we're going to be talking about insulin resistance and colorectal cancer. Dr. Flood, thanks for uh, being with us today. We appreciate that. My pleasure. Maybe before we get into the topic about insulin resistance and colon cancer, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this area of investigation. Sure. I mean, it's kind of a long story. Like just about everyone I know who works in public health, I didn't come in here by some direct mechanism. No one grows up as a little kid thinking, oh, boy, I'd really like to be an epidemiologist someday. (laughs) You know, it's not a doctor, a lawyer, or one of those traditional things. I was planning to go to law school, of all things, and I needed some work, and I just got placed at a place called the American Institute for Cancer Research, and I started working for them. And I had an undergraduate degree in biology, so it wasn't like this was unfamiliar territory to me, but they do diet and cancer research. In fact, they've published a bunch of huge landmark reports on diet and cancer, Mm -hmm. and I was involved in the initial one, and one thing led to another, and I decided I actually wanted to pursue this as a career. And that's how it worked out, yeah. When you ended up looking at this issue of insulin resistance in cancer, had there been other work? Had other people looked into this? Was that association postulated before? Oh, sure, yeah. The initial hypothesis was floated really in the mid-'90s by Edgy Ivanucci at Harvard and Gail McKee and Eisen. They independently had identified insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, at least, as something that was potentially very important in determining colorectal cancer risk. They noticed that a lot of the risk factors for both diabetes and colorectal cancer tended to be similar, if not hmm. the same. There were a number of studies through the years that began at that point to start looking at this in some detail. And in 1997, the time of the initial AICR report that I mentioned, they classified all the different diet and cancer relationships according to the strength of evidence supporting them. And diabetes was one that they thought for colorectal cancer was, there was not sufficient evidence at that point to make a conclusion. But since that time, there have been a number of cohort studies, epidemiologic studies that have looked at diabetes as a risk factor for colorectal cancer. And pretty much consistently, we find about a 30 to 50% increased risk among people who have diabetes and subsequent risk of colorectal cancer perhaps a little stronger association for the colon cancer than for rectal cancer. Mm -hmm. I think it's fairly well established now that that's the case. The question is exactly what's the mechanism driving the diabetes and colorectal cancer association. And are there some potential physiological explanations that are plausible to you at this point? The primary one that has driven this work is the role of insulin. People who are diabetic obviously are going to be hyperinsulinemic, at least at the initial stages of that disease. Mm -hmm. In the few studies that have looked at time since diagnosis, what you find is that people's risk increases for a period of time after their diagnosis and then sort of declines, so that the maximum period of increased risk might be between 5 and 10 years or 10 and 15 years. So right around that period, you're at the maximum point of increased risk, and after that, it tails off, perhaps consistent with the idea that as the pancreas begins to give out and the insulin levels begin to decline, that the insulin is no longer there to be causing its mischief and so the risk of cancer is going down. That's one possibility. 
there are other ways of looking at that, too. So it's a little complicated, but that's the primary thing that people mm-hmm. are concerned about. Last year, you published on the topic, and as you and your team were looking at this issue, could you share with us how you thought about study design and what methods you wanted to use to get at this question some more? Well, I've done it in a number of different ways, and one of the primary tools of the cancer epidemiologist is the cohort study. I mean, that's, that's a very nice design because many of the things that we like to do are not really suitable for experimental designs. Mm-hmm. And the cohort study is a good design if, among the observational designs, probably the most effective one in trying to assess risks. And so we had a group of about 45,000 women that we had recruited into a cohort back in the 80s, actually. We had a bunch of information, questionnaire-based information on them related to diet, lifestyle factors, and we had asked them also to report if they'd been ever been diagnosed with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Among the women who did, they had about a 50% increased risk of colorectal cancer in the eight years of follow-up. That was 50, 50? Yeah, about 50%. Wow. Yeah. So that was a pretty nice result. One of the interesting things about that, though, is we thought that, well, if we're really thinking that it's the insulin that's driving this association, then people who are not yet diagnosed as having had diabetes are probably, if they're about to become diagnosed as diabetic, are probably hyperinsulinemic. So if we just restrict ourselves to people who have reported a case of diabetes, that we may be misclassifying a bunch of people as unexposed to hyperinsulinemia when in fact they are not. And so what we did is we included people in our exposed group, people who subsequently became diagnosed with diabetes during the follow-up period. The idea being that if it's truly hyperinsulinemia that matters, then these people perhaps should show an increased risk. We should strengthen the association by including these people in our exposed group. And what we found was exactly the opposite, that actually the risk estimate went down by including these people. And the question is, why is that? And there are a bunch of potential explanations. If you are just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable and a special series exploring cancer on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Flood, and we're talking about insulin resistance and colorectal cancer. So in this most recent observational study that you talked about, you said there were a number of possible explanations for the results. What have you settled on in your own mind as to the best explanation? Well, I haven't settled on one. Uh, We still (laughs) have to figure this out still. But potentially, it could be that the people who were pre-diabetic at baseline, who became diabetic within a few years of the baseline period, that maybe that, that our classification was correct initially, that these people really weren't hyperinsulinemic enough to increase their risk, and so including them in the exposed group was incorrect. I see. Or that maybe they were not, the degree of hyperinsulinemia wasn't high enough, or the duration of hyperinsulinemia was not long enough, so that they hadn't been truly exposed in a way that would increase their risk. Now, that's consistent with the data that I described before, where we saw a peak of risk for diabetics and colorectal cancer for people who had been diagnosed with diabetes maybe 10 years prior to the onset. So those two things may be consistent. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that there's something else about diabetes, aside from hyperinsulinemia, that is driving this association. What that might be is something we have to maybe try to figure out. Try to figure out, right. With the original cohort and then with the addition of the pre-diabetic patients, were the results surprising to you? Not the main analysis where we just looked at diabetics and colorectal cancer. That's what we expected, and that's 
like I said, consistent with a growing body of observational studies of that type showing very similar results, actually amazingly consistent, 30 to 50% increased risk of colorectal cancer for diabetic patients. I was surprised by the lower risk when we included the people who became diabetic. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was thinking maybe it would go the other way. So, Andrew, once you shared this work, both with the original cohort and then the added pre-diabetic patients, you shared the results. What kind of reaction have you had from your peers and with respect to critical comments or agreement? Anything you can share with us? Well, I haven't had too much uh, either way, really. I think I was a bit surprised at the amount of press interest in the story. Mm-hmm. It made a lot of news. I think that the main result, it was not, like I said, not terribly surprising. The the one with the, including the people who were pre-diabetic, was a bit surprising. So we'll see how what happens with that. And I think that does raise some questions. And I think there are some questions in general, similar types of questions that have been raised by other studies of this type. So I think it's a field that, you know, it's going to require a little additional work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's on tap for your group and following up with this particular study? Well, we've done some other work in this area that's somewhat related and looking at things like impaired fasting glucose among people who have had an adenoma removed and seeing that those people are at pretty highly increased risk of having a second adenoma within four years. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's even more so for people who have advanced adenomas within four years. Very strong increased risk. So we're, we're beginning to think that maybe we should try to consider doing a study where we actually try to address hyperinsulinemia or impaired fasting glucose among people who have had an adenoma removed to see if we change that, does that actually then benefit those people in terms of reducing rates of uh-huh. recurrent adenomas? Right. Well, that will be interesting. I look forward to seeing that. Do you think that this association is commonly or well appreciated amongst uh, the medical community? Do we need to get this message out to medical students and residents and fellows? I think it is not that well appreciated, to be honest with you. My mm-hmm. wife is a physician, and when this paper came out, I forwarded the, uh, well, this actually was a presentation at a conference in the fall, I forwarded the, the press release to her just sort of as a joke, and, uh, <laughs> and she forwarded it to her professional colleagues, and they were, well, many of them quite surprised, and saying so, things like, yeah. this, this actually changes the way I'm going to practice. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised at that, because I didn't think that this was that controversial, mm-hmm. but apparently it's not reached the practicing clinician. No, uh, I don't think as so. Well as, as well as I would have thought. Do you feel comfortable that the evidence supports clinical applications, that this ought to change the way we interview, examine, and, and treat our patients? You know, I'm not a clinician. I don't want to go too far down that road. But sure. I think that certainly, I think that the evidence that diabetics are at increased risk of colorectal cancer now is pretty solid. And if you have a patient who's diabetic, that's just one more thing you need to consider in your management of that patient. Mm-hmm. And that management of their glucose could be strongly related to whether or not they're going to get cancer, have adenomas, and so on. So, I mean, I do think it does have clinical implications as we understand the data right now. In your analysis of the data, I know you also asked about family history of colorectal cancer. Could you explain to us a little bit about that relationship? Does that change the association? In the one analysis I did with the people who had had an adenoma, then we measured their fasting insulin and fasting glucose. We found that the people who had no family history of adenoma actually had a much stronger association between the impaired fasting glucose and the subsequent risk of a second adenoma. I don't know whether or not that is sort of a chance result or if it's you know some sort of true pathological relationship here. And it may be that the relationship for the people who had a family history, that their risk of adenoma may be dominated by their family history. 
so that the impaired fasting glucose makes only a minor contribution to the additional risk they might have, and that the people who have no family history, the action is really at the impaired fasting glucose. But, you know, I I can't say that with any, you know, certainty at this point. Sure, sure. That is a a fascinating area for further exploration, and I think your wife is right. I think it's not well appreciated amongst our community, but hopefully after this broadcast it will be. I want to express my thanks to Dr. Andrew Flood for being our guest. We've been talking about insulin resistance and the association with colorectal cancer. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable in a special series exploring cancer on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thanks for listening.